Nothing changes instantaneously. In a gradually heating bathtub, you'd be boiled to death before you knew it. Our Father, who art in heaven. Seriously? What the actual fuck? Gilead doesn't care about children. Gilead cares about power. Why does healing have to be the only goal? Why can't we be as furious as we feel? For whatever man sows, so shall he reap. Welcome to Above the Garage. Hi, friends. Welcome to our analysis of Season 4, Episode 2 of The Handmaid's Tale, which is entitled Nightshade. Let's do our round of introductions and dive in. Hi, I'm Claudia. Hi, I'm Scarlett. Hi, I'm Sarah. Hi, I'm Julia. And I'm Kate. So the previous to this episode end with Lydia talking about the atrocities June is probably out there planning. So that is promising. Uh, But the episode itself opens with the sound of dogs barking, which is usually not ideal. The sound of a car pulling up and June looking out some sort of peephole and looking disappointed. We see that there's like a guardian fan here, but she gets right down to business and heads out to get everyone prepared. En route, she walks by three pigs consuming what's left of guardian Vogue. Fun fact, pigs will devour an entire human, even the bones. Perhaps if they'd let poor Mr. Darcy live, the job would be done by now. May he rest in peace. Mr. Darcy, that is, not the child rapist. <laughs> anyway, Alma says they're here for us. And June says, no, not, not just with one car. And she gets Janine and tells her not to run, to look at her, calms her, tells her to go find Alma. June's throwing out good girls like she's Aunt Lydia this season. I don't know if you guys noticed that. but Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Especially in this episode, I think. Yeah. And she finds a vantage point to watch what's going on with the commander and Mrs. Key's interrogation. The guardians are looking for Pogue. Conveniently, he's been written up twice lately for drunkenness, passing out in someone's stable most recently. And Esther's feeding the commander his medicine to shut him up, it seems. The guardians, not getting anything from him, ask to speak with the Marthas. Esther says they're busy bottling cider, but she can get them. And they say, no, let them work, which is so strange to me. Did they already decide something was going on here and they're coming back if not they're like yeah i think so yeah i mean if not they're the like absolute shittiest of guardians or they're not even searching with the stables yeah i think they kind of were taken aback also by um commander keys that he was so out of it calm <laughs> yes <laughs> and that, 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 that kind of mrs keys um well was in control yeah in, in charge of the situation right yeah and i'm I mean, she's also, um, it, it seems that they invited a lot of commanders and, and guardians into their house previously because she said that she was raped by so, so many of them. And I guess that the house was always a kind of a meeting point. So I don't know if they really felt so suspicious right now or, or they just were like, yeah, we know you guys, so we come back later. That's a good point, though, too, because those guardians and commanders and everybody that was raping her must have been coming before she was poisoning the commander so i would think mm-hmm. that they would notice a drastic change in yep. his demeanor probably yeah yeah if they were if they were a part of that and maybe they just really didn't care that much about guardian poke anyway yeah i think that has to be the conclusion from how they were talking about him and the fact that they didn't even search like the stables where they last found him and then one note i had about this scene was that the way they treat esther they treat her like she's an adult, although she's clearly a child, and they obviously mm-hmm. know that as well. So I'm thinking that despite the way they treat her, they may still see her as a child in a way. So they think that she wouldn't be able to lie to them or deceive them 
in a way that an adult woman would be. Yeah, wow. take it for granted. That's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, her whole character, like smoking and everything, is still, she totally deserves to do whatever the hell she wants, obviously, but it's so striking to see her because she looks so young, too. Yeah. Like, she yeah. doesn't look like an old 14, you know? Mm-hmm. How old was McKenna when they filmed this? I think she was 14. 14. Yeah, 14, 15. Yeah. 14. So yeah. she was 14. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like a pretty stunning casting decision, mm-hmm. I think. Like, a bold casting decision. Uh, did you guys listen to some of her interviews that she did? I did. Write research on child rape victims. And that must have been hard. Like, I imagine yourself at 14 and you read all those interviews with rape victims. Oh, I mean, that's amazing. I saw an interview she did, I think, right after season four. And I remember they asked her, you know, that there was maybe a little controversy of giving a role to such a young person because of the thematic of the show and mm-hmm. I remember her answer was I can understand that but imagine that there are people there are 14 year olds that go through what my character goes through mm-hmm. in the show and I was like oh wow because <laughs> I was it, it's impressive I think like she McKenna herself is kind of beyond Esther yeah. in her development just what Kat said that she's pretending to be like an adult like smoking and being in charge and I'm the mistress of this house and oh, I was so mad in the first episode when she's shoving when she's making Janine eat the yeah yeah work yeah. and holding her mouth shut I got so mad but I think she does a really good job of being a teenager mm-hmm. and it's just hard for us to just decide how to take it all I don't know how to explain it but like she's pretending to know everything yeah. that which she doesn't like what she doesn't right I think she was forced to be like that because of Gilead maybe yeah that's kind of like how I took it I mean sure her her position like when the scene comes when she tells June that she gets raped all the time and repeatedly and what she's been through it makes sense but Mm -hmm. until then June is really annoyed with her too Uh, June yeah at that point accepts that this is a you know this is a consequence of Gilead, you know, yeah. you're just fucked up. <laughs> okay. So when they leave Esther, ask June how she did and what it means that they, that the guardians came here at all. And June says it means that she has to leave. Esther looks quite sad. The handmaids are looking at maps and June says they always, they always knew they had to leave sometime. Maybe they will get us to a cell on the Western border. Alma says, no thanks. I'm going to Texas. I hear they're letting people in. Something that I often forget is that Texas became its own republic in this tale. Mm-hmm. And Brianna simply says she doesn't want to fight. And she looks really sad. She really does not want to fight. And I wonder if she would rather have remained at her posting. Um, but June points out none of them wanted to fight at first, probably remembering herself pre-Gilead or even when Emily first approached her about Mayday. Mm-hmm. June 1.0, very different than this June. And then David comes in and says that Mayday contact won't talk to anyone but her. And um, when June asks why she can't come here, uh, he says, you can leave. She can't. So even this mystery Mayday person who has some power is stuck wherever she is. Did you have any other notes on that scene? I found it funny that Esther was uh, taking the glass far away from June because she knew that (laughs) uh, what was in there wasn't really good. (laughs) And I didn't catch that. The first time I was just thinking she's just pissed at her or something like that. Right. But she was offering uh, lemonade to the guardians, right? So was she trying yes, to poison them as well? Yes, she did. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, but like, it was the same she gives her husband, right? 
like the commander. Yeah, it's just in small doses, so it's... Uh, so they wouldn't have died from it, right? No, no. But just... they might have noticed. Maybe that's another reason they came back. I don't know. I think I would notice being slightly poisoned, but maybe... But if they, if they would have been poisoned, it would have been even more suspicious. <laughs> yeah. Like, like, I don't understand what, what the purpose of poisoning those guardians would yeah. be, unless she's going to kill them. Yeah, exactly. Like, why? I... Why would she do that? Like, she's a teenager, so she might do things that don't make any sense, but, but why? Why? She offered them lemonade. Was it the same thing that she poured on the commander? Because she's like, would you, would you guys want lemonade? And then she said, I'm giving him his medicine. It helps with the pain. Mm, and it yeah. looked rough. Like, it didn't look like lemonade to me. But she yeah. could have poisoned the lemonade as well. We don't mm -hmm. know. Right. I, I just don't really know. I didn't, wouldn't put it past her because first she's a child and she probably does stuff that is just right. revenge acting. Impulsive. Yeah. And then um, I think the effects that are on her husband are not that severe immediately. It's just because she's constantly giving him this poison. Maybe in the first time they only get a sore tummy or I don't know, feel lightheaded or anything. And maybe she just wanted to get a bit of revenge. <laughs> without getting caught. Then we're in Canada and Luke is making a presentation about Angel's flight and he is inviting Rita up to speak. Rita looks nervous as fuck. And I could have mm -hmm. told you this would not be her cup of tea, but she's doing it and she's praising June saying when she first met June, she never thought she was capable of all of this, saving all these children, saving me. And that June stayed behind to continue fighting, even knowing that meant she could never leave Gilead. And she concludes that Gilead has a way of bringing out the worst in people, but in June it brought out the best. And then she can't go on. Great line to end on though. Rita, it's very true. And Luke takes over and awkwardly switches the subject to money because it's hard to do that. But it's important. So good for Luke. He's raising money for the Angels Flight kids, helping take over the details left over from June's cause. And afterwards, Mara is complimenting Rita. She says she, you know, Luke's really good at this. I don't know about, I don't know how I did. I just felt like I couldn't say no to him. And Moira uh, corrects her and she's like, no, this being free means you can say no. They talk about June for a moment and how she's still raising hell. And Rita says she keeps her in her prayers. And Moira says, pray for Gilead. Um, what I took away from the last part of that was that Rita is still a true believer in God, at least. not Of course, not in Gilead or anything like that. But she's really a true believer in God. And she hasn't faltered in her belief, it seems, even though she has been through hell as well. I mean, uh, obviously not as bad as June or the other handmaids, but still. And I found that really, yeah, it made me a bit emotional that she's still holding on to that. Yeah. What I took, took away from this is that uh, Rita, she's still, she's holding on to a lot of her old behaviors from Gilead yeah. as a Martha. They're not supposed to be seen, not really anyway. They're supposed to be be seen when they're they're told they're when they're asked to be there but they're not they're not expected to be there and actually take charge of anything or speak up or anything like that and of course we don't really know we don't really know Rita that well we don't know if, if that's her that's part of her nature if she was like this before Gilead as well but but it clearly she retains so much of her behaviors that we can also see this later on in this episode yeah. Also, we did learn something new about Rita, right? I, I don't think we knew her last name before. Rita Blue? No, no. Yeah, right. 
I always wondered what uh, Luke and Moira, Moira are doing in between working and stuff because, I mean, we never even see them truly look further for June or Hannah or anything. Just the few times we have seen him, we can assume he's doing that next to work, but seeing that he uh, they actively do volunteer work for all the Gilead people was nice. It was nice to see that they... Are doing yes. something at least. Something. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I was kind of surprised by the scene, especially with Luke's attitude. And I mean, not that he uh, was able to speak in front of those of this crowd of people, but more about the timing and that he was very, very, I don't know, that he was so cheerful. Cheerful, it was the word. Like where we went, we left off with him when he was expecting to see Hannah walking out of this yeah. um, plane, and she didn't. So he was crushed by this. But of course, he now knows that it was June's doing because Rita told him, and that kind of gives him maybe a little hope that she might get out at some point, yeah. or that she can get Hannah out at least. But I don't know. I still felt like. It kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I don't know. You also see when when Rita says she stayed behind, mm-hmm. and you, I think the camera pans to Luke, and you can see the guilt. I mean, I'm pretty sure he has to feel very guilty and inadequate also because of it. And he's also wondering why did she stay? All those emotions have to be going through his mind, but you can also see the guilt in in Moira's face too. You know, I know Rita didn't mean it like that, but it's the truth. June decided to stay and fight back and they're there obviously doing what they can so it's kind of like a, a contrast to to those situations yeah and I thought that he was cheerful because he knows she's still alive and she's currently not captured so that gave him hope and um he was proud of her and everything yeah he says yeah. that um there's hope because she's still alive exactly. I agree that it, it doesn't seem like that would be my demeanor in the same situation um, because she's actively being hunted and will likely die soon. Yeah, yeah, sure. But yeah, that's what I thought when Rita said, "I'll keep her in my prayers." She looked kind of sad, and yeah. it kind of just gave me the impression that she probably knew that June was not going to make it out alive. And he's he's trying to accomplish something good here, at least. Yeah, yeah, but I think he also kind of needs to do this to use it as well uh, to find a way to forget about actually that that um, June is well at risk yeah. and yeah what is actually happening back in Gilead right he's very good at compartmentalizing mm-hmm. like we've seen yeah. this forever is. and pretending the terrible things that are going on mm-hmm. are not and focusing on his little bubble so yeah yeah so more saying pray, uh pray for Gilead to Rita is the perfect transition for June on her mission to meet with Mayday they pull up in David's delivery truck to a mansion with commanders walking inside and June waits nervously till Martha lets her out and tells her to follow and we get a voiceover places like this have always been about fantasies they were built so men could act like country lords pretend you're rich for a weekend now they're for fantasies of a different kind so this is the country club version of Jezebel's it seems and then Martha walks June to the greenhouse where we meet the Mayday contact, who looks very witchy. She is wearing a black cloak with a hood shading her face as she deals with herbs. Uh, she's got a cool vibe, though, uh, maybe kind of unhealthy feel from her, too. And the woman said she thought the handmaid that killed Commander Winslow would be taller and asks where she got the knife. It was a pin, June replied. And she says, oh, you've been busy. First Winslow, then your Air Canada thing. 
Ford's gotten out. People have been doing things, slashing tires, cutting power lines. Someone blew up a checkpoint. All of those kids free. I can't believe you did that. So June's inspired others to act all across Gilead. Exciting. Uh, but Jen, June defends herself angrily. They took my daughter uh, and gets to the point. Do you have a safe house for us? And she does. The woman tells her uh, yellow farmhouse on 44 is their next safe house. Can they go tomorrow? Because she needs time to get word to the family, the Murrow family. And then June asks how she knew about Winslow. And the woman tells her that she was in Boston before this. And after he went missing, they cleaned the house. Uh, she was one of the lucky ones. So more bodies in June's wake, it seems. I like the contrast in the scene because at first, Daisy is kind of admiring June. Like she's in awe that this one person was able to do all these things. And then at the end, we are kind of faced with the consequences of her actions, you know, and how that has those repercussions in other people. But she's still inspiring people. And obviously we've talked about how Mady is just like, one person, one thing at a time. And further down the episode, Stacey mentioned something about Mayday as well. And June is just on a mission doing things. Obviously, she's not thinking about the consequences because why Why would she? She just, she just wants to make a difference and go out with a bang. But I like the contrast in the scene because in a way, she's inspiring people to be more proactive and fight the system while the system is still going to kill you for it because that's what the system does. So those consequences are going to be there, whether it's June or whether it's somebody else. So I like the way that scene played out. And I also like that everything was green and there was only like one red flower. I don't know if you guys noticed in the, in the scene, it's kind of like handmade red. So I thought it was interesting. Mm. And June then points out there's a bunch of military commanders out there. Mayday should do something. The woman has given up on Mayday. She gave up on them liberating the police, this place a long time ago. And June says, hey, it isn't an army. We are Mayday. They're people just like us. And this is something we've kind of been learning over the years. Although occasionally it seems coordinated, like this network is going to find her a safe house. Did you guys, like on your first watch, not on this rewatch, but on your first watch, were you kind of expecting or had to fear to see Nick there? Because you mentioned the military commanders heading to Chicago and he was back at Boston and see uh, like an episode one. So I did. I do remember having that fear. Yes. Okay. But I was scared that they would put him in there and she would be oh him there. God. And no. it, it would be totally out of his character. You know, yeah. it's not that yeah. I was expecting it to happen, but I, I, because I didn't know where they wanted to take his character. So I was hoping it will not happen. But gladly it didn't. <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, I was a bit shocked how many Jezebels work there. Then I kept thinking, where are they and how far it is, uh, is it from the other Jezebels? And then I was like, how many Jezebels are there? And how many women are forced to this horrible, unimaginable life to have to be forced to have sex with all those disgusting men? Yeah, it's really um, upsetting. Didn't you guys all, though, choose, when we did the Jezebels, choose to be a Jezebel or a handmaid? Didn't everyone choose Jezebel but me? No, I yeah. don't think so, because some of us thought, like, yeah. as a handmaid, you're still somewhat protected from, you know, crazy yeah. Yeah, yeah. rapes. Right, yeah. But still. So what do you guys choose? I think I chose Jezebel, yeah. <laughs> you're right. I think I chose handmaid. I chose handmaid as well. I have no idea. I choose... Uh, handmaid. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. Maybe Jezebel's. I think there's more freedom. And as a handmaid, if I get fried, I'm still going to go to Jezebel's. Yeah, that's right. 
That's not a fun game to play, is it? In Canada, Serena's hand is being scanned and the doctor asks about her finger. Did he do that? And strangely, Serena defends him, saying not directly. It was an appropriate punishment under Gilead law. The doctor asks if Fred ever sexually assaulted her and she answers no. And then if he ever had unprotected sex with anyone aside of her and her handmaids. She says yes. And he asks, she asks how many. And Serena answered that she doesn't know. He frequented a brothel. And they ask her about further physical abuse. And she says no at first and then changes her answer and tells her um, he struck her back. Another appropriate punishment, she asks. And Serena says it's not that simple. When the doctor says it didn't leave any permanent damage, we can see by Serena's face that it did. Mm -hmm. Then she's talking to her lawyer and Tuello's in there too, as if he's like part of her team. And Serena's objecting to the lawyer's plan of playing the victim. The lawyer clarifies by establishing a pattern of abuse um, and get these charges dropped. And Serena's still defending Gilead's ways, saying it wasn't abuse, not exactly. And then Tuello and Serena have a little exchange and she faults him for serving the warrant. Serena and says that Fred acted out of anger. He probably regrets it. Tuello says, I don't understand why you're giving him the benefit of the doubt after all he's done, as if he needs to. And Serena says, because I knew him before Gilead and asks Tuello to arrange for her to see Fred alone so she can get him to drop the claim. Tuello says he'll see what he can do and she knows he will make it happen because he's wrapped around her little finger for some irritating reason. This is so domestic violence classic justification. Watching it again was like so maddening because she can't even accept it. She's And I don't think she's brainwashed, right? I just think she needs to justify it to keep some sense of pride, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was just so frustrating to to just see that she kind of like had an e- it's not an easy way out, you know, with that defense. But she just decided to go the route of I'm just going to go manipulate Fred because I knew him before. And she doesn't want to be the victim or be weak in that sense. Yeah. So I was thinking that this is definitely not about her supposed love for Fred or anything like that. This is about something totally else. So I started thinking that this would be about Gilead and about how she was basically the one who came up with a lot of what, what's happened in Gilead. So maybe she feels the need to defend that, or in other words, defend herself and her own behavior and her own thoughts rather than Fred. Yeah. And it's also, yeah. yes, it's about not showing weakness, but I think it may also be about her needing to defend Gilead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, her- it's like a justification of, you know, everything that she gave up mm-hmm. and she can't, she doesn't want to lose, you know? So it's, it's again about her pride. It's always been about her pride. It's just mind blowing to me the way she's justifying it and the way the lines are being said, you know, I've heard that before and it's just so sad. It's really sad. And that sense in general, not for Serena. Serena can go fuck herself. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Truly. Then Moira and Emily at the refugee center trying to find a placement for a child. Their plan just fell through. The chosen family decided it would be bad for their own child. And Moira is dressing more girly than I would have expected from her in a skirt. Emily's in a suit. Before previously, she was more of a pants kind of girl, right? Yeah, I think it's because of the thing that they were doing. The presentation. Presentation. Yeah, she's wearing wearing like... I don't know, chucks and, and jeans later when she visits the kid. Yeah, okay. Anyway, uh, and then Moira's girlfriend is introduced. Hello, Una, you are very tall. And Moira's canceling her dinner with her because this child situation, and but promises a sleepover later. And Una tells Emily she looks cute in her mouth card too. So now we know Moira grinds her teeth in her sleep. Important information to file away for later. 
Just kidding. It's just a setup for some good natured teasing from Emily. She's seen you in your mouth guard. Go fuck yourself. Moira laughs. And it's a cute scene. And I enjoy seeing those two together. And then at the farmhouse, Alma is telling June this is a terrible idea. And Alma contends that June doesn't care about helping the Jezebel's women. She just wants to kill a bunch of commanders. And June admits it's both. And I can't not do this, Alma. Janine suggests a time bomb. Do you know how to make one? And is disappointed to learn June does not have time bomb production in her bag of tricks. It's really cute how disappointed she looked. Like she was sure she knew how to make a time bomb. And then when Esther came in, everyone stopped talking and she calls them out on it. Says she doesn't like that. Good for her. I wouldn't either. And she says the guardians are going to come back and June tells her she'll take care of it. So they're really excluding her. And I don't think that's very smart because she's very volatile. And June realizes that, I guess, and follows her. But she's still being kind of condescending. There's a lot of farms for them to check, she says. Nothing for you to worry about, which is silly. Of course, she should worry. And June tells her that they're leaving tomorrow night, and it's not safe to take her wherever they're going. I'm fairly shocked that she would even consider leaving Esther there. Maybe just because she has it in hand with the poisoning, but... Esther begs her not to, and thankfully June agrees in tears and kisses her head, says we're going to have to do something about the commander, and Esther looks up at the plants above them, and June gets it immediately. Have have you been poisoning him? She even says it, like, as if she's talking to a child, sort of. And Esther replies, you learn things on a farm. Which reminded me of earlier, the pig devouring the body. You do learn things on a farm. And she walks over to the pot she's stirring, and June is now very intrigued. Can she teach her how to make more? And June puts gloves on to handle the poison and asks her when she started poisoning him. And Esther says, not soon enough, accurately. She says she only poisons him enough to keep him from being a bother. Her Martha showed her how. He's not a good man. Maybe there are no good men in Gilead. June gets thoughtful and turns kind of, she like spins around kind of dreamily at that moment. It's kind of cute if you watch that. Mm two seconds over and over again uh and she says i think there are good men everywhere even here it's just complicated you know gilead makes it really hard to be good it is indeed complicated good foreshadowing for the end of the episode yes yes oh my god yes really like they added that there yeah yeah but it's just it's also not just nick i think who like is obviously one of the best men in her gilead experience but she also meant like even we have like guardian David here on this farm who is well mm-hmm. dies at the end of the episode to protect her kind of. Um, we have Omar and the kind butcher. <laughs> yeah. So there are quite a few good men we already see. Yeah. And Lawrence. And Lawrence, yes. Kind of. <laughs> yeah, he's more gray. I would say. He's a wild card. <laughs> yeah. I think she'd say he's a good man. Yeah. So June would say he is. I mean. He- came around we don't know what exactly he did at the start that's the problem because um he could have gone either way that either they just picked up some of his idea and made him that hero that invented this or if he really just said to them i think yeah, he just jokingly wrote a book like okay let's i mean we need people work there just put the women in there like a joke joke and they just took it seriously and put all the women there yep. uh, he could have just said the prisoners and they were like yeah let's put the prisoners in that and it's all women because the men are dead anyway yeah. i don't think he believed that mumbo jumbo of the religion of the sense no, of no, oh my God, no. I just said, no. I think he just wanted his utopia and then yeah. he just obviously he turned a blind eye until it was until it hit him in the face but yeah I mean the fact that he seemingly was aware of the fact that there was a network working from his house against Gilead I, I'm sure he knew that from the start that they were doing shady stuff in his cellar he did enough but he's not gonna sacrifice himself 
and like Dune says, until yeah, it came for him. Came for him. So yeah, exactly. I was going to talk about the the other scene about like how Dune didn't have a plan, which is usually what a lot of people talk about. Like she has no plan going forward, and she's just yeah. improvising. I mean, she's not supposed to have a plan. Actually, she's not military trained, but it just comes to show what her mindset is. You know, since episode one, since the season started, Hannah's still pretty present in her mind, but she says that, you know, I have to take care of my friends and I have work to do. So from the beginning of the season, we know that she's focused on doing as much damage as she can to Gilead, however she can do it, whether we agree with how she goes about it or not. Yeah. I was thinking about the moment that June and Esther shared when Esther was like, please don't leave me here. And she was uh, kissing her head and holding her and everything and I mean we have seen it already starting in the end of the first episode that she was like her little Hannah replacement but here it came out really with full force again especially later when um, when she goes to the Jezebels and she says to Janine that she should uh, take care of Esther and that she has good shoes for the running yeah it's cute (laughs) so yeah it's like she's now under her wing. She even called her banana in the, in the yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If there if there was any doubt remaining, she's exactly crazy. it's kind of cute and kind of weird and yeah. <laughs> all at the same time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, you can definitely see it as like a flash of vulnerability in June's eyes or in, in her expression when she holds Esther in that scene and kisses her head. But yeah. then you can see her just sort of push it down. Yeah, Like she's realizing that she can't really afford to be this real, real proper motherly figure at this yeah. time. And it's, it's hard to kind of like Esther says, you know, I know you don't trust me because she's still a wife and she acts like you guys mentioned in the beginning. She acts like, like a wife. She's trying to pull that part because the only mm-hmm. power that she has after everything that she's gone through, but she's still a child, especially in the scene. You can totally see that she's, she's still a child period. You know, it's this very interesting how they played both of those angles in that character. I have a quick note um, on the title of the episode because we kind of see it in the scene that they, when they prepare the poison and it's Deadly Nightshade, <laughs> also called Belladonna, which, yeah, is deadly, like in the right dose, but it was also used to widen your um, pupils, I think. Like, and when Claudia said it before, they kind of took just a little... For, or if, if they gave her just a little bit, maybe it will whatever change their perspectives or whatever. So that could have been um, the reason. But anyways, the meaning of deadly nightshade night is also silence. So um, that would have been kind of a nice parallel to what Esther wanted to do with the, with the guardians to silence them. Do you think there's another meaning of this nightshade title? I just think that with Nick in the end and the knight yeah. like stepping out of the shadow, yep. that's that's the only other. That's the only thing. Yeah, I thought so too. Yeah. Guest. That's what I was going for. Yeah, it has most mostly it has other like two meanings. So I think that's probably those two right. that they were aiming for. Yeah. Well, it's also what she does in the night. I mean, she obviously goes back to Jezebel in the night. So to use the nightshade. <laughs> yeah. That scene ends talking about Goodman and Gilead, and then Serena is visiting a very bad man from Gilead in a little chapel, hilariously. Fred is worried about her sleep and seems genuinely concerned. She's 
Surprised he asks, much like myself. And Fred says, you're still my wife. And Serena notes that this place reminds her of one of those airport chapels and reminisces about um, her book tour. Uh, chapel in Dallas, an island of grace, a very small island, Fred said, like they've made God in this place. Very small. A hell of a lot larger than his presence in Gilead, you idiot. Then Serena moves in, trying to convince him to drop her charges. And he says she's gotten rusty. She used to be so good at getting him to do what she wanted, but his eyes are open now. She says she just wants her daughter back. And I do enjoy Fred's next line. Nicole is not your daughter any more than she is mine. And if you think I'm going to let you have her and walk free and go and start some new life, you are delusional. I do not like Fred, but I do like that line coming from the most delusional person on the show. <laughs> he, he has the best lines sometimes. Like, yeah. Just, just the fact that <laughs> yeah. he's like constantly making jokes about himself without even knowing that because he's delusional. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you say applies to yourself. And Serena says that she thought once he was out of Gilead, out of that uniform, he would come back to himself. I am as you made me, as you made us, Fred says. So he's really nailing it today, like mm -hmm. we said. Yeah. And Serena says he never looked back once he got a taste of power. And she thought it was her fault. She thought she deserved everything he did to her. And then Fred says he gave her too much freedom and leaves saying, she's right, Ugh. it doesn't have to be like this. So <laughs> it's a little uh, inconsistent because he says both, like, this is all you're doing. And then yeah. I'm the powerful one, which is not. Of course. I mean, she, she yeah. was, when I remember the scene when she was in the hospital uh, shot. Yeah. And she said, like, you need to be a man. Yes. And that's, yeah. that's what she made out of him. Like. Yeah. After that, we see him mm -hmm. kill the first person. And um, ever since then, he got more powerful and more horrible. And yeah, she made him like that. I always thought that was a turning point because Fred needs to kind of like feel that woman need him and cater yes. to him and make him feel powerful. And Serena was never that woman until Gilead came to be. So yeah. what she says there, it's true. You know, once you had a taste of power, he was never going to allow her to, you yeah. know, have that same power ever again. And what pissed me off in the scene is that he says, she is not your daughter. You know, like he knows, obviously these people know that all of this is bullshit, but they just, they just still, you know, are going to justify it all the way to the end, just so that a few can have power. Oh, that sounds so similar. Mm -hmm. Like right now in America, I just want to like scream at people. It's okay to change your fucking mind. It's okay to like admit that you were wrong, but they, I know that they never will. And that is going to be like, what, the end of the fucking country, the planet, like. Like Serena. You know, yeah. But it's just so infuriating that your pride is more important to you than the health of your grandchildren and the country, et cetera, et cetera. It's the fact that people refuse to admit that they're wrong that drives me fucking insane all right anyway serena is left behind when fred leaves seeming fairly shocked that she failed and he can see through her then we're with some lady we don't know seeming frazzled looking through papers she can't find she says her hands are full and moira comes in and agrees instant parenthood is not something you can really prepare for moira does know that she goes further into the house and we meet the insta child asher he says he's hungry and the insta mom says she made chicken fingers butter noodles and pizza not exactly a uh, Gileadian menu. Not really healthy diet as well. <laughs> Nor that, right? But the mom doesn't understand what kind of kid, what kid doesn't like pizza? And Moira agrees with Asher, it's different here. And he says he hates it. He, him, he misses his Martha and his room and his mom and dad. And the mom 
tells him those people aren't your mom and dad and Laura corrects her. It's better if you don't correct him. He needs to feel what he's feeling. He asks her if he'll ever see them again. And she says, no, and it's okay if you're upset. And he runs off and Laura turns to the, the new parent and says, it's okay for Asher to be angry. And she said, his name's James after my brother, his dad. So she's actually his aunt, but she does not like, it's frustrating to me. I, I'm sure she's exhausted from trying in a tough situation, but it's really frustrating to me that she doesn't seem to really be trying in in the ways that she should, you know? Mm. Of course, it's going to be a huge shock and he's going to need like some baby steps into it rather than, okay, be an instant Canadian kid, enjoy your Hot Pockets or whatever. Like Like even the TV was on in the background, but what he he did was sitting at the table and like drawing with cranes because obviously there was no TV in Gilead them to look at it mm-hmm. he was not even interested in the cartoon that was playing there uh, i see it. i didn't pick up on that but exactly like just more of the same like mm-hmm. this is not what he's used to you gotta you gotta feel your feelings yeah it's this shows that they don't understand mm-hmm. they they lack the ability to understand what these victims go through they assume that they're going to be out of this horrible place and they're going to go back to quote unquote normal yeah. so the people that just want their loved ones back that's kind of like all they see and they're incapable of understanding the whole process and that the process is different from everybody. Yeah. But also for these kids, it wasn't even that horrible at this point. No, no, but it's all they're known. Especially for the boys. Especially it's boys, all yeah. they knew for a lot of years. They've been, yeah. yeah as Mara said, they've been ripped out of their like quote unquote families. The only families they remember and that's hard. Yeah, it is. So yeah, you're right, Kate. She should have been a little more patient mm-hmm. with how she handled the situation, I think. Yeah. I do love though how the show handled showing that it's not all flowers mm-hmm. and rainbows and shit yeah. for these kids, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because they could have just moved on and yeah, you should get all these kids out. And instead they focus on reality, which of course it's not gonna be easy from that point forth. Um yeah. I just really like the show for that. I really like Moira in this episode, like how she handled the situation with the kids. And the things she said about June, about her, her staying in Gilead and, and then her Mora having to basically clean up after her in Canada. Yeah, it's all so real. Like, yeah, it's messy and not, you know, it's just very real. Yeah. So she talks about that with Emily and says that, like, she says the kids fucked up. And Mrs. Gilead, the kids were ripped from the only families they know. And Emily says June didn't think that part through. And Moira said that's what she does. She takes the big swing and fuck the consequences. Which is kind of funny too, because Moira didn't even see that much of her. She wasn't really like that for Gilead, but she definitely has her number now. And Moira yeah. admits she, lo- she loves Nicole, but she never wanted to be a mom. And Emily asks why she feels like she has to clean up June's messes. Moira admits it's probably the guilt from getting out when June didn't, but she's tired of feeling guilty. And Emily says, I get it. She gave me her baby and then stayed behind. Who does that? <laughs> and Moira chuckles and asks, are we terrible people? And Emily says, I don't think so. Moira admits, I just hope she's okay. And it's all such great writing. It's so many messy feelings and entirely realistic, yeah. like you were saying, Sarah. Like, they just nailed everything yeah i think the guilt moira has has been carried throughout all her different episodes and it's something that weighs very heavily on her like i i always think back to that scene in the subway when moira did that split second decision of of just leaving her friend behind and it's that's what we see throughout this episode why she's acting like that i thought her first line was kind of like difficult like that's what she does you know she doesn't think of the consequences but that's i guess that's who june is yeah Mm -hmm. I remembered what I wanted to say in the other 
scene with Moira and Emily, and I can say it now because it's true here as well. I I just love how those two are getting friends more and more. We have seen it in the last season two. Was it in season three when they started to hit it off? Yeah, mm-hmm. it was in season three and, and just went on to eat something with each other and share a bit of each other. And now they are real good friends and can talk deeper. And I just love that they found each other. Yeah. And also like... You know, we're talking about how June doesn't worry about the consequences, but I just want to say, I think that obviously, I think probably everybody thinks she did the right thing though, right? Yeah, sure. She couldn't worry about the consequences. All she did was get them out and then it's in other people's hands. So yeah, it is a valid complaint or fault of hers, but you know, it's awesome that she got all the kids out. Yeah, I mean, Moira was probably then going more on about the fact that they have the baby now, Holly. The baby, yeah. yeah and uh, she is not there, and she just basically... That one she could have handled. Yes, yeah. you're right. So Other choices could have been made there, sure. Yeah. Back in Gilead, June's doing it again, taking the big swing. Janine asks to make sure she doesn't want someone to come with her, but she tells Janine to stay here and take care of everyone, make sure Esther has good shoes... Esther is, of course, smoking on the porch. And Janine makes me laugh yet again in a serious moment when she salutes June and says, Red Leader standing by. Another Star Wars line. I love that Janine is a well-established Star Wars fan. (laughs) And I think I'm pulling like long ago Star Wars knowledge, but I think Wedge Antilles said that and he was like the right-hand man to Luke Skywalker, which, you know, similar to this. She's like the right-hand man to June (laughs) or maybe Alma is. Okay. I don't know. I digress. Uh, June salutes her back and thanks her. And it's so cute. Have you noticed? We see dogs. We don't just hear yes. them. We see yeah. dogs and they have at least two. I was like the whole episode, there's constant barking everywhere. And I was like, where are the dogs? And then they really showed us this time. So it was like, yay. Yeah, this time he's just sitting on the porch with her. And I love that. That I noticed it in the last episode when they were like chained up. And I thought that was weird because I figured they'd be like roaming free. But they were barking at Pogue when he was yeah. on the property back then. Oh, but, yeah, right. Yeah. And yeah, another one ran through when June went to the car. So they are actually running. Oh, yeah, through. yeah. Border Collie. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It is so nice to see dogs, pets, actual pets, and Gilead finally. Yes. Made me happy. And I love this next scene. It's genius. Moira brings Rita over. And Rita probably kind of needed this too. I hope. I don't know. She could just be going along with not saying no to people, but it seemed like they are good for each other right now. She's definitely exactly what Asher needs. She greets him in Gilead talk plus a day and he recognizes her from a plane. She says that was a really scary night, wasn't it? It was for me too. She's going to stay the night even and cook with him and he asks if it's food from home and she says yes and she could use some help and then she gives him a wooden puzzle piece and it's just perfectly played by Rita slash Amanda. I enjoyed it a lot and his aunt looks very happy and relieved and Moira says she can't stay, she has plans. And again, we see like the toy she gives him. Yeah, like, this puzzle. wooden. Yeah, this uh-huh. I don't know. I thought it was like it was just like some elephant toy. It's it's made of wood and really sustainable and all plastics and stuff. And he he loves that better than maybe any any other thing he got from his own. Yeah, it's really really cute that she gives him the Gilead feeling. Yeah, it's so simple, kind of. Yeah, although she probably has a hate-love relationship with that herself, right? 
it's familiar to her, so she's easy to tap back into that. But I think she's still trying to get away from it otherwise. But now she needs to help the kids. So it's like, because I, I'm thinking she's out now and she, she doesn't want to go back to Gilead and she hates Gilead and everything. So she probably hates all that, but otherwise... But it doesn't mean that she hates taking care of others. I think she's no, no, no. a, really, a really but... good caretaker. And... Yeah, yeah, but the actual doing the stuff that she did in Gilead, I think she has a love-hate relationship probably with it. She can't stop herself from... You know, we need we need a flashback of Rita. I need to know what yeah, she we did need... before Gilead. Yeah. I need to know if she was if she was a nurse or like if she, if she had been working... Uh, like in a restaurant or something like this or if she yeah. was just a housewife maybe yeah but I was just thinking if I was in her situation I was there and had to cook all the the, the same food mm-hmm. my my own brain catalog all the time again and again and now I have the world open again to me and can basically do whatever I want would I really want to eat the same stuff that I had even there for years and years i don't know but it's i think it's it's just been days right like how many days like yeah. 20 days or something since right um, she's been free for so yeah. it's not yeah. even a month since she got yeah. out and it really takes time to adjust yeah sure i think even like i think food is the hardest thing to adjust to probably i don't know if you've been in other countries for longer than a month because i have mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> and, and if you like the cuisine it's okay but if it's not the really best thing it's yeah you start to miss things pretty early on I think I mean everyone's different but oh I thought you were gonna say when you came back from Japan you missed Japanese food but I studied abroad in Scotland and I did not miss I did not miss the Scottish food when I got home <laughs> I was quite ready for American food no I, I felt like I missed the Germans like German food, non Japanese food, non Asian food. Right. Like, but like gotcha. Japanese food is good. So actually, I didn't miss a lot of things except for bread. Bread was the only one thing I missed. And my mom sent me some. <laughs> Specific times. bread, right? They do have bread in Japan, right? Yeah, but they have only this toast kind of white breads. And I hate them because like Germany and Austria and all those uh, countries here, we have like 3,000 types of different bread. Oh, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> with seeds and, and corns and whatever and dark bread. And, yeah, right. so I really missed that. I just wanted to add a quick note on what you were saying, Claudia. It, it's also, Rita now has a choice. Like she doesn't yeah. have to cook dinner, but maybe, you know, like she has the choice if she wants to do this or not. And, you know, that could also be her coping mechanism as well. And so she, like Yulia said, adjusts to all this freedom that she hasn't had for years too. Yeah, you're right. Um, I just realized that basically this is one of the better things that Gilead did, going back to healthy food and mm-hmm. um, not mm-hmm. not all that plastic shit and everything. Mm-hmm. I had the same note. Yeah. yeah, it's basically if she wants to hold on a bit longer to that, I don't blame her one bit, actually. So, yeah. When Mara leaves, she goes to Una's and surprises her with Thai food. And Una's shocked to see her. Um, she's on her way out. Her Uber is only eight minutes away. So they have a quick date on the stoop. She And she tells Mara, when it pulls up, she tells Mara she could always come with her. And Mara looks nervous. Where is she going? 
Um, so back at Jezebel's, June's selling Daisy to give some of the poison to the drivers to grab their car keys, etc. which is an interesting decision considering she's talking about the Knicks of the world. Uh, and Daisy says she doesn't think she can do this. And June says, yes, you can. We're the ones we've been waiting for. Something her mom, Holly, used to say. And then some bitchy aunt comes in, Aunt Wendy, and June covers for Daisy saying she just needed some food and that awful woman says, nothing too fat, little piggy, even though Daisy is insanely slim. And June... Yeah. Perhaps appreciates the assist, though, from Aunt Wendy in convincing Daisy to not pour the poison out. She offers her the option of pouring the poison out or not, and Daisy ultimately decides she's going to poison the commanders. Better to die on my feet than live on my knees, right? And June says, yeah, and puts a hand on her arm. Daisy asks if June's sure she doesn't want to stick around for the fireworks, and June looks excited about that, so I guess she's going to stick around. Then we're looking at Serena through the fence at the detention center. So the camera angles change to make her look more uh, prisoner-esque. And Tuello breaks some pretty fucking stunning news. Serena Joy Waterford is pregnant against all odds. Tuello says congratulations completely and genuinely and walks off immediately. (laughs) (laughs) He is so mad. He's so mad, yeah. Yeah. How dare she get pregnant with her husband? Yeah. All right. So in multiple or in interviews, they have confirmed that Holly is Nick's daughter. However, Serena's pregnancy really calls that into question because now we know that Fred is fertile after all. Yeah, sure. It can happen that if you change everything up and then you are get, getting healthier, that the count gets up. So maybe he just had a low count. Of sperm. Maybe it's because it was the only time in years that Fred actually had good sex. <laughs> like this fake sex with June and Jezebel's. That's not how you conceive a child. <laughs> it's just not. Your, your theory <laughs> is passionate sex leads to more babies? Surely. I like that. <laughs> what do you guys think about Serena's reaction to the news? She is shocked. She had not re- uh, realized any of it. She had not, never expected to be pregnant in her life ever. She she didn't even look joyful or anything. She just no. was what? She didn't look happy at all. I mean, it's which Fred. was weird to me. It's Fred, so she probably knows oh. that she's tied to him now again after mm-hmm. everything. After they basically now hate each other. Mm-hmm. So now it's not the perfect time, but there it is. She will not not have this perfect little family she will always dreamed of. No, she won't. Too bad. Sucks to be her. <laughs> <laughs> well, karma, I would say. <laughs> like we care. <laughs> I have one more thing because I haven't mentioned it earlier when Toello and Serena talked. You could really see that she was manipulating him. She was talking nice and everything until she got what she wanted and then she basically she literally turned her back on him in the previous scene with those two when she got what she wanted and he was like looking deflated and everything and now she now he's coming back and he has gotten the news that she actually had consensual sex with Brad so even that part is different than he expected it to be because he thought that they were done for I guess and they had not been up until this point. So, yeah, he's like really pissed now, I guess. Right. 
So then we're back at the big event at Jezebel's and David Bowie's Suffragette City is playing. And this is entirely unrelated to the show. But yesterday I was having the weirdest day where there were three completely unrelated people in my life talking about David Bowie. And it was just so weird when I watched this episode. I was like, what is going on? Anyway, and Suffragette City is about a guy who's sure he's going to get laid if he pulls his shit together. I think. I don't know. I don't know if that's true. But we see some awesome shots of June syringing the poison into the bottles and... The bottle's being poured into all the asshole's glasses and the bitchy aunt. And the party's still in full swing when June leaves, but she stayed to watch them drink it and shares a look with Daisy as she leaves. It's kind of sad because, you know, in the past scene when she's talking to Daisy, Daisy tells her exactly what happened in the other Jezebos, and we're pretty sure this is what's going to happen here. Mm-hmm. They're going to clean house again. But mm-hmm. in the end, she said it. You know, it's better to die yeah. on your feet. It's better to die on your feet than live on your knees. Thank you. I love that line. Yes. But on the other hand, she could probably take some of the poison herself. Like, not Mm -hmm. enough to kill her, but just just enough to seem like she was one of the victims. Yeah, that's good. Maybe. I hope so. Heading back with David, things are quiet. And as soon as the farmhouse is in sight, you see all the lights are on and Mm -hmm. she's alarmed. Something's wrong, she says. Stop. When David gets out with her, she tells him he should go, and he says he's not leaving her. Good man in Gilead. We love you, David. As they walk forward with their two flashlights and the headlights from the delivery truck behind them, and then we hear something clink, and June steps on bullet casings. Mm-hmm. David and June look at each other right before a single shot takes David out, shot to the head, and his blood is all over her. She starts to go for his gun when she sees the red light lasers from like a dozen guns on her. And she hears someone walking out of the farmhouse. And as it focuses on him, Nicholas Blaine says, where are the handmaids? And June's like, what the fuck is going on exactly? Until he walks to her and kneels and says, I'm trying to keep you alive. And then he taps her shoulder. Their little touches always like give each other strength and, you know, they communicate through that. And it was the perfect move for that time but it's so important to me here also that he still lets her choose he doesn't kick the gun away Mm -hmm. he walks away gun in reach he turns his back to her completely giving her the power to shoot him Mm -hmm. whatever she wants to do but because it's him and she knows him she knows he's really trying to keep her alive and so she pulls her hand back from the gun and stands up so fucking proud still i love this like whole scene the cinematography is amazing they're both looking at each Mm -hmm. other and then the lights flood them and it's just amazing and she's still like holding eye contact as she's being like blinded or trying to and he's just looking at her like he always does and it's so hard because Gilead is fucking complicated like it seems obvious to me that Gilead had found her and because of that he volunteered to come get her so it wouldn't be someone else Mm -hmm. and if it had been anyone else she would have picked up that gun and been dead for sure for sure 100% (laughs) he knew that yeah it's not the kind of music that you play if your heroine was meeting a villain or the villain, she's not meeting a villain. Good point. It's yeah. a really sad scene for her and for Nick because, of course, they miss each other. But at the same time, they now get to see each other for the first time in a very long time. But mm-hmm. the circumstances are terrible, of course. So right. I think the music really is really, really great for the scene because it shows how they're feeling. Yeah. yeah, the music is amazing. I, I love the music in this scene. Yeah, the music I noticed when I was watching. I'm glad Sarah brought it up because it's kind of suspenseful, like at the beginning when he's mm-hmm. coming out and when he kneels down, which I think is also important to her yeah. and tells her, you know, I'm trying to keep you alive. The music, the chord of the music changed in that precise moment, and the music, the tone of the music sounds 
totally different. You know, it's not a scary music. It's not a trauma bonding music. It's a very different type of music. She didn't even know if Nick was alive. Last time she knew about him, he had fought Mm -hmm. for Gilead, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. and um, she, he went to the war. So she didn't even know if he was alive or dead. And here he was capturing her, which when I saw it, I was freaking out. And in my mind, I'm thinking it's, you know, he's going to airlift her in a helicopter because he's so powerful. You know, he's the (laughs) most powerful commander, air quotes. And he's just going to take her away, which is the least realistic thing to ever happen. But after season three, I thought they were really going to go that route with him being like more mysterious. So when I saw this scene the first time, I was really upset. And then I was able to kind of understand that if it wasn't him, she would have just killed herself because she even tells the guardian to go, you know, go, this is about me, you know, and him telling her that the handmaids weren't there also is very, very important. She already had the hand on the gun. They made a like a big ass long shot on that gun. Uh Yeah. That's important. Trust. There was a shot of trust. Yeah. There was. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have went over her facial expression like a hundred times by now. And I'm like, before he gets out, she's really fucking scared. And then I figured it, it was. I mean, she was shocked and she couldn't believe he was there and she's confused because he's the one arresting her. And But what I really love is that she, when, when he turns his back on her to give her the opportunity to do whatever she wants, she can shoot him. He, he knows she wouldn't even be right to shoot him because he feels guilty for everything for such a long time. And if she shoots him, then he's okay with that because she, he feels guilty anyway. And then... Um, I have felt that she kind of just a tad is smirking because a bit of relief sets in because she understands why he's here. And then it goes into defiance. She gets up and she's like, okay, we are doing this. You can basically save me from me being stupid and letting myself get shot. But we are doing this my way and I won't spill and I won't give up and I'm standing here and coming with you but you won't get anything out of me I love that she was like okay I trust you I go with you but um, I won't say anything and she's the stubborn June that he knows and yeah the fight is not over for her I think her standing up was just like I I was thinking about that too when I was watching it and the word defiance I was like kind of going back and forth because it's just this is it you know like this is how we're gonna play it you know, yeah. this is who I am now. And, and he looks like, <laughs> fuck. Yeah, he, he, knows. he knows. He looks a bit sick, I thought, yeah. because, mm. I, especially because this is all wrong. Yeah. He shouldn't be standing there and she's down at his feet, his prisoner, and everything about this is wrong and he can't change it because otherwise they both will be dead. But also think about his, his mindset, you know, be probably brought the commanders back from Boston because of what she did so he has to know exactly what she did they already know about Winslow they know about the angels flight so he knows that if she's found she's going to die yeah they said I mean that's 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 what Fred said that what's on Lydia said exactly they said it in council and Nick knows that as well that's that's Yeah. yeah everybody knows that so if he's brought back from the war after seeing probably everything that he's seen in the war, because I'm thinking of 401 and his attitude in, in, in that first thing that we see him, just the pressure alone of trying to find her to keep her alive just yeah. puts him in this fucked up choice that he has to make that a lot of people don't understand. 
because again, she was suicidal all the way till this moment. So she doesn't care about dying anymore. Yeah. But how did Nick end up there? I think because in episode one, we saw him like being back in Boston for mm -hmm. some reason we don't really know. <laughs> um, and now he's here capturing her or like arresting her at least. Yeah. But we kind of left off in episode one with um, the question if they plan on an invasion to Canada, right? That's what they yeah. were discussing. So I was thinking it probably brought Nick back to Boston because he was, because they oh. needed to discuss this option yes. with him because he was at the front and, and, and now he's back in Boston and well, probably Aunt Lydia also asked them to up their game to get June, right? They said, like, your men hadn't been finding her. So yeah. you need to do better to find her. So probably, I was thinking the council was kind of upping their game, pulling all their resources together and kind of assigning what they had on this mission. And then, of course, it was convenient that Nick was back and said, okay, oh, wait, they're looking for her. I'm going to Syria. So to make sure she's, well, if she's captured, that she's not getting killed there. I think though that, I mean, you are surely right about the fact that they brought a military commander back because they thought about invading Canada. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but I think he didn't go on a search for her, uh, but they already had a clue where she was. And he was like, let me, please, I, I, I get her. It's okay. But, um, I mean, they must have known that he was in the same household. Maybe they thought he would be best because maybe she can help them get the other handmaids back and maybe she doesn't have to die, but they didn't really care about it, I think, at that point anyway. But yeah. I'm a little confused. I know this is not the episode, but in 401, that beginning scene when he goes and talks to Lawrence, I go back and forth with it because... I still don't understand why he goes specifically and talks to Lawrence. And then I think to 303, when Nick asks June, is there something wrong with Lawrence? Which I think is such a stupid question because if he doesn't know anything about Lawrence, quote unquote, yeah. because he's too high up, why would he, act like Lawrence can be just like Fred. He knows what a commander does to a handmaid. So yeah. that was just odd. And then he's the one, obviously for sure reasons, it's a great scene. Nick is not a stupid man. But I think that he looks a little deflated when he comes back from the war. I'm pretty sure he saw shit in the war. I'm pretty sure he has June on his mind. But I don't know if he was testing Lawrence, if he was trying to find a way to save him. Because I don't think Nick could go up to the council. He's not in the... I don't think he's in the council. Um, he's just a military field yeah, commander. The council in episode one was um, Kaloon and um, Putnam and seven others. Yeah, yeah. Not Lawrence, not Nick. So I was always under that impression, like, why did you go there? Like, were you trying to maybe get an idea on how to help Lawrence? I'm pretty sure Nick was an I. Nick had deals with Beth. Beth was in Lawrence's household. Yeah. There has to be information there. Like, there's just no way that they don't know bits and pieces or or everything. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if if at that point at the end of episode one, if all of that was put together, obviously this is all assumption because we didn't see it by Nick and Lawrence in terms of them working together to try and, and, and maybe help June because now obviously after he tests Lawrence or he gets the idea, he saves his life. So now he kind of owes him, you know? So mm -hmm. it's all kind of like a power play also the way that I, that I saw it, but I'm always very confused as to why go to Lawrence first. I don't know what you guys think. 
I think he was sent there, actually. I, I thought that the first time he went to Lawrence, he was sent there to give him basically the heads up that he's going to be sentenced. Or I don't know. Mm-hmm. But Lawrence made him think about that if he could be an alley if he plays it right, because he was saying that thing about June uh, time and time again. And it was like, he knows June and he seemingly helped June. So maybe he can help him help June. And then he tried to get him off the death sentence. But I, the first time I saw it, I thought that they sent him because he was a lower commander and he was like an errand boy again. And they just sent him to Lawrence to tell him the news or whatever. Because it, he, he couldn't even really say anything to him. He was always saying the same thing. I know it, it had different meanings. But he but... looked back to make sure the guard wasn't listening to him. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Yeah. He told him he was going to be executed tomorrow in that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I felt like he visited uh, Lawrence, yeah, to get information on June and what happened to her, like, kind of, because, I mean, he he knew that she was at large. So maybe he wanted to find out if Lawrence knew something about this as well. Yeah. He's the closest he could get to June. Yeah. Interesting thought. I haven't thought about that. I was always under the impression he was sent there for the first time and then he got the idea that Lawrence could help him. But I don't yeah, know. Yeah, true, true. The first time, I think, like, no, I think like it was voluntarily that he went there to broke to him, like broke the news to him that, yeah. that they want to execute him. So he can have like one last talk with um, oh, maybe, maybe Lawrence he and was, after they yeah. had a conversation and he spoke about the Tower of Jewel Osborne. What do you want? Yeah. Um, that was later, but what 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 do you want June's legacy to be? And that's yeah. what persuaded Nick to um yeah, sure. Well, help him um not to be killed, <laughs> actually. And then he had a favor left with him. So yeah. Yeah. I know we're running long. I just want to make a quick note on like the style of filming in this scene, how like very film noir it is, how Nick steps out of the shadows and he's like, Yeah. Oh god, it's so good. Yeah, I, even the blinding light at yeah. the end. But like Nick Nick's a you know pretty perfect uh, male protagonists in film noir are anti-heroes rather than heroes, often anti-social loners. Disillusioned, morally ambiguous, flawed, or tarnished in some way by their past. They may have their own moral code, but they will be out of step with society and ultimately powerless. So he's gaining power now, but it fits him pretty well the way that they styled his character. Like the more power he gains, the worse like it gets mm-hmm. for him. Like the yeah. you know, hateful oh. things he needs to do. Because the first thing, when he stepped out and he says um where are the handmaids i think that's that's also like he's so great at giving the right information in spy language kind of because it just means kind of okay your friends are safe friends are safe yeah Mm -hmm. um it also just reminded me a lot of like i don't know world war ii kind of felt like europeans like hiding jews that got found Mm -hmm. i don't know it just felt like a world war ii kind of feel to me also so it's a cool scene so I have one more question. Sure. Do you guys think that June recognized Nick like right away when she saw his form or was it lo- only when he started talking? I mean, I did. So I hope she did. I think she did, but she couldn't. I mean, she thought, as, as um, Scarlett said, she, the last thing she knew it was that he probably was dying in Chicago. So she couldn't really believe that he was there. So she, she saw him and was like, is it him? 
And she was so shocked. Yeah. Do you think she was confused at first? Like, oh shit, what's going on? And then as he approached. I think it was a combination of what's going on here, you know, like, especially because of what Serena had said, maybe that kind of went through her mind for a second. And he's there, like, it had to be just sort of a shitty situation in terms of all those emotions that, you know, went through her head. I'm just, I think the, the fist bump, you know, was just like, just like Kate mentioned, kind of like their grounding, the way they balance each other out yeah. in a way for her to like, kind of understand that it's going to be okay as okay as it can get. What do you think, Sarah? I think that she recognized him pretty early on. I think I'm trying to remember how I reached this conclusion. I think her expression may have changed a little bit when she saw the form coming toward her. Maybe it was his form, maybe it was the way he walked, but she recognized something. But then when he started speaking, then it was definitely familiarity. Oh, one point I still want to say is um, the fact that he had uh, David shot. Now in, in hindsight, I was like, this was the best thing that could happen to David at this point, because if they hadn't clear shot him, just one shot and he's dead, he would have probably been uh, tortured and everything to give up Mayday people. And I mean, there was no way they didn't kill him at any point, um, even if they hadn't shot him. Mm -hmm. They would have arrested him, they would have tortured him, and then they would have killed him. And on, along the way, he probably might have taken down some Mayday members with him because, I mean... We all break, right? I mean, it's kind of the same thing that happened with Omar, who yeah. in the end, well, spilled the beans about the plane. Yeah. And so killing him with a clear headshot was probably the most merciful thing that could have happened to David at this point. Yeah, I agree. Okay, I think that's a wrap on our spoiler-free analysis of this episode. If you are a longtime fan, hold on a second and we'll start into our deep dive and discuss the episode in the context of the show to date, which is through season four. Okay, go for it, Claudia. The first thing is um, when Brianna said, I don't want to fight. And she's basically the one that's always in the back and looking scared and, and she doesn't want any of this. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sad because, yeah, she didn't want any of this and now she's sad. It's really sad. Yeah. And then when uh, Rita talked at the mission thing uh, and she tear tears up when she talks about June and then I realized that it's not long before they meet again and they finally are both out. And yeah, that was making me a bit emotional and I had to <laughs> write it down. <laughs> and of course, then her saying the Luke asked me, so I couldn't say no. And then Moira told her, you are out, you are free. You can say no. That's, that's life, how it's supposed to be. And I don't know which episode it was. But Rita finally says no to Fred and Serena, basically, and then um, goes to eat her sushi and finally do things she hasn't done before. So, I, I mean, I think she said no to Serena. I know she said no to Fred, mm -hmm. basically, fuck up. So. But we still see her, her, like her having a hard time adjusting, I think, because when June yeah, is sure. back, when June is back and 
kind of scolds her for still cleaning and uh, yeah. still being like in her Martha role. Yeah, it takes time, but she can say she does it on her own. She wants to do it. She wants to care still for the people, mm -hmm. but she um, she just finally for the first time said no, especially to a man in this season. She says no to Fred when he was like, yeah, you can come with us and yay, we can be together again. Oh. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to talk about how Moira says, it's okay, he's angry. He needs to feel his feeling. And then later on in season four, she doesn't quite feel the same way with June or doesn't express yeah. it mm -hmm. anyway. And kind of, you know, Luke and Moira, both of them are not... They're not encouraging June to feel her feelings, right? They're telling her to move yeah. on. And so I didn't love that. Uh, I really like how Moira is with Asher here. Yeah. I think it's like, uh, is this because he's, he's a kid and June is an adult and adults Maybe. should be able to move mm. on? It's like, I, I think it's, it's dismissive. It, I don't like that at all. I think it's, still, it's yeah. still also like the point that they kind of expect June to be strong. Yeah. Anytime. That's so fucked up. I just think they want her back. Like they, yeah, that's yeah. what they that's hope awesome. for. They they yeah. just they just see that and they can't they don't understand sure. this new person and, and they just want her to be who she was and they don't they don't do it maliciously, but they don't understand no. how they're pushing her away. It's just yeah kind of like how we see victims. It's it's I, like see with how Asher's aunt didn't really see in this episode yeah. that um how she should behave with him and how she should allow him to feel what he's feeling. And then later on, it's Moira who's sort of too close to the situation with June. And mm -hmm. she just wants June to go back to who she was. Yeah, sh yeah, that, that's right. It's the, maybe they are all too close to her, but it's like, it was horrifying. I, I felt so sorry for her being out because nobody helped her, basically. Everybody was just pushing her to be better and accept Emily. But... <laughs> Well, yeah. I think also because everybody heals different. And yeah. as we see, like, Moira kind of solved a lot of her guilt when she was able to rescue June, quote-unquote. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. You know, she kind of, like, she has had more time to heal and to compartmentalize her trauma in a way that works for her, just like Emily, um, Rita, Luke. So everybody heals different. And I also think because Moira here says she's tired of being guilty or feeling guilty yeah. I think she kind of pushed herself also to well yeah to to heal as you said Scarlett yeah like that's why that's why like bringing back June taking her back to Canada um mm -hmm. was like biggest mission for her like to finally be able to get her out as well to not be the one not to not leave her again like yeah. the third time it would have been right yeah Then I have just a quick note on um, that Una says to Moira, you can always come with me and not that long later, probably at the next mission, yeah. Moira joins her and finds June. And it's so lovely and so emotional. It doesn't really end up well, though, for Una's no, no. organization. Kind of. Basically, Una um, here is inviting Moira to fuck up her organization. So. That was yeah. Also, my thought. Did you guys like? Did you guys really like Una in the end? What, were, what was your take on Una? I didn't like her. I was torn. Yeah. I was torn. From... I understood where she's coming from, mm -hmm. but yeah, it was harsh. 
I hope that they can make up later and that she can understand. I mean, I think she can understand what Moira, why Moira did it. But yeah. They had another go, right? At the end of the season, right? They kind of. They said they will. It was, yeah. They'll have a conversation. I would rather her move on and find someone new. I didn't like her. In the end, she was fine here. Yeah. She was good here. And then when they were in the in the Jezebels and poisoning all the commanders, I was like, oh, maybe that's how Nick got the seat in the council, <laughs> basically. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I was thinking the same. Yeah. yeah. Even though Lawrence said that not all of them died, but yeah, I not guess. all. But <laughs> I guess they were not all in the council. Maybe it hit one or two of them. I also think that because he captured Gilead's yeah, yeah. number one criminal, you know, but why would his... they kick out another one? That's the... Because he didn't capture. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> I was also thinking maybe that's where he got his wife. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. a newly widowed commander. A lot of widowed. A lot of widowed. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? June is either way. June is uh, basically the reason he got promoted and got the wife. Right. right. That's that. That's just we funny. don't know. I mean, uh, the wife thing, I don't know because uh, if he if he was back from the front and not really going to be sent back there, yeah, maybe they would have wet him up. I was like, honestly, every episode I was looking at his hands to spot a ring. <laughs> no, honestly, I was because I was yeah. expecting this to happen since since he got back from the front. I was like, that's so funny. I'm. I was oblivious because it's it's just a normal You're right. course of action yeah. for a commander to to yeah. another household when he's yeah. back from the front. I also think that if he's, I, I don't know. This is my assumption. Like if you're in the council, you have to go by Gilead values, so you have to be married. So I, I think that's also part of his whole. Yeah. Like people say, the perks of him being a commander that he apparently, quote unquote, enjoys so much. Hint oh the sarcasm in my voice. <laughs> he looks so awful by the end of the season. Um, so fucked up because he's like not enjoying any part of this. But yeah. He needs to, he needs to play the thing. So um, the last thing I have is that uh, when... Nick captures her and sees her like the she's all defiant and she's standing up and she's like okay I I do what you want but my way (laughs) basically he realizes that she won't give anything away she won't give the handmaids away and that's why he starts to practically beg her as soon as they are remotely alone that she has to save herself and for once not care about the others and tell where they are so she can save her own life and because he can't live in a world where she doesn't right yeah mm-hmm. do you guys have any other notes i have a couple okay so one of them was about fred and serena uh, first of all i really loved their scene the whole conversation because they said so many things that uh especially fred that at least many of us on this podcast have been thinking about that they never actually been voiced on the show but what i really want to say is that fred is still unsurprisingly so stupid in that scene he's he's in canada and he imagines that he's still got all the same power that he has in gilead he's still drunk on the same power that serena helped him achieve and i just can't stop thinking about the look on his face in the season four finale when he realizes nick's not going to help him and, and that he really has no power and i just thought back to this scene 
Like he is so obnoxious with Serena. There. He's a man. He has rights. Come on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and that important is when he sees that no, Tuelo is not going to help him. Tuelo is not going to help him survive the situation. Lawrence isn't going to help him, and Nick isn't going to help him. Like none of these men, some of, some of whom were, were actually supposed to be loyal to him, are going to help him. And only then he realizes that he's lost that power. It's what, like I said before, like it's the women that have the power in his whole storyline, because Serena is the one that puts him in jail, and in the end, it's June that kills him. So the men are not helping Fred; the men are helping the women, because even Tuello is helping Serena in a way even if we don't like it. Exactly. So my second point was about June. It's uh, basically about how in this this particular episode has up, we see June being this confident, maybe overly confident rebel leader who takes even really, really big risks. And then later on in season four, we see her as a, a meek and a mentally absent wife and friend in Canada. And then there's this third part of June that is the vulnerable woman, like like an actual woman who ha- who who's sensitive and who needs to be loved. And that's the woman she's with Nick. And we see all of these three women in June in season four. So I'm just wondering which one of these Junes will take the front seat in season five or will we see all of them again? I hope it's a good mix. I mean, mm-hmm. I want to see the more fierce, fierce side of her, of course, more because I want her to wreck shit up. Yeah and get her revenge so badly i mean i i like her um to get a bit more peace with having her friends back and having part of her family and having her baby and all of that but yeah i don't want to see the meek wife no from season one uh, before Gilead. oh my god oh my god no um, and then I have another note on um, when because we were discussing those all those unhappy children, or well, at least we saw one of the unhappy children in Canada. And well, this topic will be brought up again by Lawrence when they negotiate an um, exchange of Hannah and well, a bunch of those unhappy children. Actually, Jay Law knows about somehow. I don't know. Who's his contact? <laughs> I would also like to know this. Maybe Gilead has spies in Canada. Yeah. And they told the council that. Yeah. Yeah. And then I have like one last note on um, Luke and his behavior again, because we were talking about that he's very, very good at being an optimistic um, person. Yes. Yeah. But when he hears about June's arrest, the following episode, like it's episode three, I think he finally starts to crumble a little and lose that hope, I think. Because we were discussing, we, like, Nuke knew that she was still alive, but I was not really sure if, if he actually knew that or if he, if he was just hoping this. Because Rachel Tapping said that even though they know she got even, that she got arrested even, they would never probably know that if she was hanged or if she died or what happened to her and he should make peace with that so that's true when Rita says that June stayed back to help others to bring Gilead down whatever he kind of looked well guilty but probably hopeful but then in the next episode 
it all changed and, and he questions her decision to stay back. Also just noted that like when Rita said uh, Gilead usually brings out the worst in people and it brought out the best in June that I don't think that Luke probably agrees with her once she comes home in season four. I don't, I don't think that he thinks Gilead brought out the best in June. I think he liked the pre Gilead yeah. more timid, less actionable June. I don't know. I agree with that too. Totally. I think he, he's not the person who wanted to do bigger things. I think in his life, he was even kind of ignoring the changes in in America. Yeah, it was very much ignoring changes. He didn't ever get outraged at her losing her money and job. And he was never outraged when it was time to be outraged. Not malicious again, but yeah. I think it just shows that it doesn't, he doesn't understand because these things don't affect him. And he lacks that capability of understanding. Mm -hmm. It's part of just personal growth and not everybody, not everybody has it or not everybody thinks it's important until they kind of have to face that that reality and understand once it like hits them. But then he also kind of doesn't want to put himself in a position to understand. I think it's just his coping mechanism. I mean, we even like later in the season, he kind of substitutes Hannah with Nicole or Holly. I think it, it's, it's that he will, I mean, it's nice that he's taking care of her, but he kind of um, puts her or like treats her as his own daughter i think that's such a hard situation because you saw at first he was unable to connect with her and i think for him it's almost necessary that he just pretend that she's his daughter and i'm okay i guess i'm okay with it while june's not there and then when june gets back and then it gets a little weirder for me when he's like i'm gonna take you home i'm gonna take my wife home to see Mm -hmm. our daughter that's where Mm -hmm. it got weird for me because it was as if Nick didn't exist and it was Luke and June's baby together, right? Yeah. I think that the whole Holly thing, it's kind of like most viewers say the same thing. Like, well, he is Holly's father because he's taking care of her. And in a normal society, I totally understand, you know, that a lot of times the stepdad steps up because the father is absent, but this isn't a normal circumstance. Like June didn't go on sabbatical, got pregnant and brought Holly back and then went back to her yoga instructor. Yeah, yeah. She's in Gilead, you know, like what else could he have done? You know, like I understand that he didn't have to, Moira didn't have to, but they're going to look like total douche if they just give her up for adoption. So I understand that he's bonded with Holly now, but I think it's also part of how the viewers see this whole fatherhood. You know, Nick can't be a father because he's in Gilead. And the Mm -hmm. only way he knows how to be a father was keeping her safe and away from Gilead. I think I really wish that June and Luke had had this conversation about what Luke should call himself when it comes to Holly at this point when she came back from Gilead because uh, just him deciding to keep calling himself Holly's father without asking June if she's okay with that is offensive, not only toward Nick, but also toward June. Because mm-hmm. he doesn't know what she wants. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I agree. That should have been a conversation, yeah. Kate, I have a totally different question to you. Ooh, me. Yeah, because I was not sure if it was this episode or episode three where we got this um, this script notes. It was some something like um, like when, when June get, gets captured by Nick, she not what we actually saw. Um, yeah, so in the scripts... 
it was written a little bit differently and I think a little less Nick and June. I think Max and Lizzie really put more of a Nick and June feel to it because I think he told June don't when she went for the gun. And I think she said, fuck you before she was swarmed by everybody. So I, I, I really like that it changed to give June the agency that Nick always gives her. Mm-hmm. And the, the shoulder tap, I think was really important because they're, communication through these little touches is kind of a big deal in their relationship like also the the don't like it's a command kind of exactly which yeah. is not like Nick. it doesn't do that no. with june no and never. the trust yeah the trust yeah. that he that she you know that split second that she thinks you know and she just decides to trust him because like she said earlier in the episode there's good men everywhere yeah just, yeah gilead gilead makes it hard for people to be good. I mean, I think that was translated throughout the whole episode. I mm-hmm. think it's important in this particular scene too. I agree, yeah, for having said that earlier. I think it's really important that it played out the way it did. But that's why we love Max and Lizzie. <laughs> Their special magic adds a lot. Do you guys have any other notes? Um, I had a small one with like when he walks from the shadows here in this episode and then he walks, not from the shadows, but from the doorway. And then in 409, he walks the same way, like out of the school. And um, she's also kind of kneeling down by the stroller. And in this one, she's kneeling down and he's standing up. Obviously, very different circumstances. And I also had, as I was talking about, the good man quote that kind of translates also, I think, more as in 409 that says, now we have a good man in Gilead. Mm-hmm. So I think the show has slowly given us these very subtle hints about who the good man in Gilead is. They are still good men. Men can still be good. They're not just bad because they're men. Mm-hmm. And I think that in this episode, like I said, Gilead makes it hard for people to be good. I think that translates to both June and Nick. And I think also in this scene, she kind of realizes in the predicament that he's in and the choice that he had to make, which is horrible. And that translates, I go back to 303, which she tells him, well, you're a commander now. You can get Hannah we can, you can get me out, you know, and people don't understand that he's just one commander. And if we go again back to season three, Lawrence was extremely powerful. And by the end of season three, he had no power. Mm-hmm. Um, so even though he says that the governments make exception, if, if they want your power, or if you're seen not to go by Gilead rule, they're going to bring you down no matter who you are. So I think Nick learned. Lawrence nearly died. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Lawrence nearly died. And I also think that the fact that Fred and Winslow were gone, which were the ones that were kind of like inching for his power and to take him down, also helped Nick kind of figure out how to help them as well. And that also translates to the 410 finale. I'm like jumping all over the place because Florence also had a little Personally. a little thing to settle with Fred yeah, over yeah. what happened with Eleanor. So I think that's also very, very lovely how all that played together. But even the men that are quote unquote, working for Gilead because they have to work for Gilead because they're there, they're trying to survive or whatever the reasoning, they're still trying to do some good. And if you compare that to Fred, Fred never does any good. Like he lost his way. Like he told Serena, like you made me, you know, he was all about power. Even if he knew that Gilead was bullshit, like he says to her, like, that's not your daughter. Well, he knows the whole system is bullshit. So. Okay. I think that's a wrap on our analysis of season four, episode two. Come back on Monday for season four, episode three. Thanks for listening. Bye. Have a great day. You too.